the original goal of vaccination was to reduce morbidity, reduce hospitalizations, reduce deaths. And the third shot is very much contributing to that goal. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Fred and Bill, once again, thanks for spending some time with us. New data, some good news, some less good news over this past week. The Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and leading publications uh, came out with the headline that uh, the CDC studies uh, show what Quite frankly, I'll give you guys a shout out what you have been saying uh, for many, many weeks now, that the third dose of Pfizer and Moderna uh, offers strong protection against Omicron. Uh, Why don't we start with that item, uh, then we can back into some other good news. And Bill, I know you have the data. And then Fred, uh, a little bit of uh, on the ground reporting in terms of what's happening in hospitals uh, across the country. Well, the biggest thing that we are seeing is that last week we had said that it looked like many areas of the country were starting to peak. And if we looked at the United Kingdom and clearly what had happened in South Africa as maybe indicative of what was going to happen, we thought that once an area started to peak, it would rapidly come down. Well, that's in fact exactly what's happened. New York City, for example, the the peak was the 3rd of January when they had 43,000 cases. As of yesterday, the 18th of January, so just about two weeks later, there were 12,000 cases, so down three quarters from the peak. Now, that's New York is, is the most extreme example because it was the area that was hurt first. Um, but even Chicago, Chicago was down about halfway from its peak. Los Angeles County is down um, also. It's, it's a little harder to watch to see the Los Angeles County data, but it also appears to be down about a half to maybe even more than a half uh, from its peak. What we are seeing is that the, the big urban areas are tending to peak first because that's where the concentration of Omicron cases were because Omicron is so infectious and where you have higher concentra- higher person density, you're going to have higher uh, transmission. So we saw that in those in these urban areas. Um, I, b- I believe we'll start to see this, this same kind of uh, pattern play out across the country. Nationally, we're down 7% um, in the last week. Still, more than half the states in the U.S. are seeing cases on the increase still. But I would expect that we'll start to see it over the next next couple of weeks. We're going to see it come down. How far down remains a bit of an issue because the U.K., came down very rapidly to about the same level of cases that they had during the late summer, early fall with Delta. They were not Delta cases. The severity was not as bad, but it seems to have found a floor also. So it's going to be interesting to see if cases in the United States find the same floor that they have found in uh, both South Africa and the United Kingdom. Yeah, Bill, this this was uh, uh, predicted in all of the simulation models. And uh, it's coming true. And, and the reason is, as you've uh, mentioned, is it's so contagious that virtually everybody in the area, particularly in cities, becomes infected. And then after they've had the infection, they generally cannot get reinfected and therefore 
the cases go down precipitously. And so that's very encouraging. Uh, but in rural areas where only a few people have gotten it, it could continue to spread. And I suspect that that smoldering plateau is a consequence of areas that are a little more spread out where individuals have not, had not been exposed, but are now getting exposed. So let me throw something out. And again, points you have made in the past. Uh, the numbers are only part of the story. The other part of the story is uh, the consequences for the people who do get infected. And I know, Fred, uh, not only at your hospital, but some of the data that you're seeing across the country is telling um, a tale not only in terms of the number of people who have been infected and who are being admitted to the hospitals, but what that actually means in a real-world um, scenario. Sure. Uh, if you are not vaccinated, you have a very high risk of, of getting the, uh, the virus, very high. And you are at increased risk for hospitalization. In our own hospital, uh, we've been monitoring the data very, very closely. And about 70 to 75 percent of those that are hospitalized are unvaccinated. Then the severity of disease is definitely uh, uh, correlates with whether or not you're vaccinated. In other words, if you're unvaccinated, you're much more likely to have severe disease. What that means is you're going to you you're more likely to require oxygen and to get the uh, pneumonia, which is less common in Omicron, but definitely occurs and occurs with a much higher uh, frequency in those that are unvaccinated. So uh, and then. We've only had, out of 80 patients I've, we're monitoring so far, we've only had one that had the booster, 10 uh, that had two shots so and did not get the booster. So the breakthroughs are going to be more common if you've just had the two shots. Really, to be uh, fully protected, you really do need the third shot. And uh, that's, that's showing forth in our hospital. Then the other uh, issue is how many individuals are ending up on or on a ventilator, and this is much less common uh, with this virus, and is what we're seeing in our hospital. So uh, that's very encouraging news, and I'm hoping that should translate into a considerably lower death rate. The other thing that's interesting is that, as Fred mentioned, that's we're seeing those benefits with the third vaccine and recent articles, recent series of studies actually out of CDC have confirmed, in fact, that the third dose does make a huge difference in reducing hospitalizations. Uh, not not quite as strong in, in reducing just cases, but reducing hospitalizations, which was the original goal of vaccination. Everybody is thinking that, well, I'm still getting, people are still getting sick, so the vaccines aren't working. No, the, the original goal of vaccination was to reduce morbidity, reduce hospitalizations, reduce deaths. And the third shot is very much contributing to that goal, which raises the question of, but what about a fourth shot? Well, in the last week, um, the studies have been released from Israel that are showing that the fourth shot, which they are giving fairly broadly in Israel, is giving a short, a very short term boost in antibody immunity. But after the third shot, the cellular immunity, which is really the long-term immunity and probably has a plays a bigger role in preventing the the more serious outcomes, is it's already good after the third shot. So the fourth shot is not adding a lot. 
Now, what does that mean for us in the United States? It means that there's probably not going to be a whole lot of pressure for a fourth, for an early at least fourth, uh, fourth dose, second booster. What that's going to mean for a year from now? Are we going to are we going to need another booster come flu season next year? It's really too early to tell. I get lots of people asking me that, and I just have to say I, I don't know yet. I don't know, Fred. Do you have any thoughts on that? I uh, no, I, I really don't. And and I saw the Israeli daddy too, and and really that four shot really had minimal uh, improvement in cases, and is not recommended at this time. Uh, we can't say in a year from now. Uh, but but based on very early data studying the original SARS virus, 20 years later, they found uh, in those patients, they still had strong cell-mated immune responses to the SARS-CoV-2. So I think there's reason to believe that after a third shot, that may, that may last for several years, but we won't know for sure until those studies are done. And and everyone has to keep in mind that, again, the vaccines are about preventing severe disease. It may be that we end up with a virus out there that causes a spectrum of disease, um, especially bad colds, maybe even up to a bad flu. But if the vaccine can prevent moving to hospitalizations and death, then it's been a been a success. And the question is going to be, how much do we want to give additional boosters to try to prevent the mild symptoms uh, if we are able to prevent serious outcomes? One of the ways to look at this in terms of preventing bad outcomes and what is happening with the vaccinations is, and with, with Omicron overall is the spectrum of disease is a bell, bell-shaped curve. And with the uh, earlier viruses, the earliest earlier variances, there was a the bell-shaped curve incorporated it at a near the center of the curve, a lot of bad disease. Well, with Omicron, it shifted the curve to the left. And with getting vaccines, it shifts this curve to the left. It doesn't mean that we will never have hospitalizations and we will never have deaths, but it means that we will have much fewer of either. Yeah, that, that's a great observation, Bill, and, and I, I completely agree with that. One of the things that I wanted to raise again is that if you just had an infection and you're depending on the infections to maintain long-term immunity, you may be sadly uh, disappointed. And if we're really going to control this uh, epidemic and virtually end its uh, the hospitalizations, we really have to keep pushing to get everyone vaccinated. And I'm hoping that as Europe has done, and actually Chicago has done, New York City has done, is you can't go to a public closed space without proof of vaccination. And I think that is the right thing because those that aren't vaccinated endanger others and really shouldn't be allowed into these public spaces. And I think that's the way we will actually uh, get more individuals to adhere to vaccination. It's always tough to completely avoid the political debate here of uh, what's mandatory and what is not. I'll just note, as many of our listeners uh, probably have, the Supreme Court um, did rule on the issue of uh, federal mandates. Recently, Starbucks basically uh, walked back their mandate for vaccination. So 
and there's still a fair amount of conflict and debate within this country about, uh, I'll, I'll say, what, what should be required and, and what can be required. Uh, but just to build on the data and sort of the lessons that we've learned uh, to date, the big question, both among uh, businesses and even leading government agencies, is when can they begin to call people back and to return to a, uh, a nor- I'll use the word normalized, uh, office work routine. So, David, early on in this, I had advocated that what organizations should do is come up with some criteria-based approach to determining whether to stay out of the office or to come back to the office, and then stick with that. The criteria doesn't really change as we go on. You know, whether what criteria you're going to use is debatable. A strategy is when you look at the, you could use the CDC's uh, transmission thresholds of, of high, uh, now I'm going to forget the exact thresholds they use, but it was 100 cases uh, per 100,000 per week was their highest threshold. Uh, 50 cases per 100,000 per week was their substantial threshold. With many of the organizations that I've been working with, I've been saying stick with that. You know, don't don't push hard to come back in until you get down back down to a hundred cases per hundred thousand per day. Or some some are still using the original thresholds of of uh, one ten and twenty five cases per hundred thousand per day versus hundred cases per week. E- either one, I think, are, are defensible. But pick the threshold that you were going to use. Pick it the one that you that you chose um, six eight months ago and stick with that threshold. And as we get below that, which New York City is getting to that level now pretty quickly. That becomes your threshold that you, you start bringing people back in. Then the big question is, do you bring them all back? Do you initially only bring vaccinated people back and you hold unvaccinated people until some lower threshold? Um, that becomes a, a personnel management combined with the, the medical aspects approach to it. Yeah, I, 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 that's absolutely right. And if you look at Omicron, it broke every record as far as cases per 100,000 uh, for, for per day. I usually follow per day. Actually, right now, still in Florida, in our county, we're at 353 per 100,000 per day. And we want to be down at about 10 per 100,000. So we've got a long way to go. And certainly would not recommend working uh, and physically working in a closed office space at this juncture. Uh, the other big issue that that we haven't really addressed recently is uh, testing and whether testing is a way uh, to monitor individuals when they come back. And I I think that testing, if used properly, can uh, uh, supplement um, the, the problems of rate in the community and the issue of uh, vaccination. Um, I think it'd be better if everyone that goes back physically is vaccinated, uh, because we there's new evidence also that the even with the Omicron, the concentrations of virus in the nasopharynx are lower in those that are vaccinated than those that are not. So th- these are really important considerations, and they have nothing to do with politics. 
Right. From early on, we, we learned that from once, once we had vaccinations, transmission from a vaccinated person to a vaccination, vaccinated person is actually fairly low, even with Omicron. It, it still happens with Omicron, but, but with Delta, it was, it was very, very low. But from vaccinated to unvaccinated or unvaccinated to vaccinated is much more common. So if you have a fully vaccinated environment, you're much safer. Um, and when I say safer, you have much lower risk of having transmission within your workplace than if you have a heterogeneous uh, environment with some people vaccinated and some people not. Yeah, one of the questions, and I don't, I'm not a lawyer, and I didn't actually see what the Supreme Court said. They said you, business could not mandate vaccines for everyone. But the question comes up, can they say, if you're not vaccinated, you can't come into our factory or into my office space? I would think that that would be in their right uh, to protect the workers that have been vaccinated and are in the office. But I, I'm not sure what the, the decision was in that part. No, and just to clarify that, not being a lawyer either, but the Supreme Court said that OSHA could not tell you that you had to do that in your workplace. Workplaces still can can require only vaccination. And that's been clarified by um, multiple federal and state agencies. Um, I, again, talk to your talk to your friendly neighborhood lawyer to confirm the the HR impacts of that. But the the, the general guidance has been that you can require vaccinations uh, in your workplace. Bill, that's a good point. Yeah. And and what when we think about it, um, we, businesses want to maximize efficiency and they want to maximize productivity. If you have individuals at work continue to get sick, that puts you at a competitive disadvantage. So the companies that, that do mandate the vaccine, say you can't come into a space without being vaccinated, they're going to be more competitive than those that don't. So let me uh, build on that just a little bit. Interesting data. One of the areas of great public concern, and certainly the questions that we that come in in between our podcasts, what about the schools? And by the schools, obviously, there are different age groups, but it's everything from the universities to the high school and grade school level. Unfortunately, it's become so political. Um, there is there is honest debate about with Omicron about how effective masks are in schools um, because kids are being kids. They are so they're oftentimes so close that there there are some studies that have shown that masks have not had appreciable impacts on transmission rates in schools. But then there are other studies that say that it that they do. So it's very difficult to argue it from a science standpoint because of these um, these conf conflicting, um, apparently well-done studies. Um, uh, in terms of vaccines, everything that applies to adults in terms of transmission applies to the kids that are eligible for vaccines. Um, now, would these kids, if they got it, would they be any worse off? Um, that's that's an area of debate because, again, going back, back to that spectrum of disease curve, we know that in kids, it's way towards the, the, the minor side of the spectrum. Um, so there is a large group that is, that is arguing that 
maybe I know, I know Fred's gonna gonna come after me on this, but maybe that schools are better just letting it rip and these kids get it. The problem is you're gonna have some bad outcomes if you do that, but it may be over sooner too. So I I, I wish I had a a really good answer. My my general approach is to to lay out the the I don't even want to call them facts, but lay out what we think we know on both sides of the issue, and then people you know, parents and uh, educators have to make decisions. Yeah, I won't get too mad at you. <laughs> but uh, this is the issue. Yes, most of the kids will not have severe disease, but there will be a few. And, you know, I, I was considering being a pediatrician once upon a time, but I got, I was a sub-intern. I was so upset when one child died that I could not go into that subspecialty. I, I think the loss of a child is so devastating I personally don't want to take that chance. And we won't, we can eliminate that if everybody in school was vaccinated the way they have been for many other diseases. And there's no reason why this should be any different. And the irony is the mRNA vaccines are far safer than the prior vaccines for other infectious agents. So they're the safest and most effective, but politically we can't use them. Uh, it's really quite bizarre in, in my estimation. But then the issue of masks, I think, is, is a very difficult one. The Omicron, if you're not wearing an N95 or equivalent where you've got really tight around the sides of the face, uh, the masks do not work as well. And I can't see kids wearing those masks all day. It's just brutal. So that part, I think, is difficult. The other thing right now with the huge number of new cases coming in, we can't consider testing uh, but uh, two things you could do once things quiet down. Children should monitor their temperature every morning. And if they have a rise in their body temperature of one degree uh, centigrade or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, they shouldn't go to school. If uh, that persists for another day or two, then you could get an antigen test to determine whether you have COVID. And obviously, if, if your test is negative, your symptoms have resolved, you can go to school. So I think you can prevent kids from coming to school that are symptomatic or have fever and uh, test at home uh, for those that you're highly suspicious. And then you would keep the pool within the school uh, of infectious individuals more dramatically reduced and the risk of infection would go down. The other key concern about the children, and boy, we're seeing this I have multiple friends whose kids have gone to school, brought it back, and the whole entire family within three days is infected. It's a 100% household spread. So if there is anybody uh, with a risk that is immunosuppressed, immunocompromised, or elderly, uh, they are at great risk. Now, hopefully they'll be vaccinated, but as particularly the immunocompromised, they don't respond very well to the vaccines. And when you let, let it rip in the schools, then all the kids will get it and they will bring it back to those individuals who could uh, end up being hospitalized. Great points, Fred and Bill. Uh, but again, the takeaway is that five and older, the best advice is to be vaccinated for, again, not necessarily preventing catching of the disease, but preventing the serious consequences. Fair, fair summary, guys. And and for those families where that have younger kids, daycare, preschoolers, right. then everybody else at home should be vaccinated. All right. On the uh, closing 
question that we received during the week, which is, there's a little bit of a uh, popular perception or misconception that Omicron is a far more benign variant, and people don't have to worry about it so much. Do you have a thought about that? It certainly seems to be out there. Very much so. That was the discussion that I had earlier where I was talking about the, the this bell-shaped curve and how Omicron shifts it to the left. Yes, in general, I believe that, and I think the data supports it, that you have much less risk of severe disease. Whether you're immunized or, or not, you have much less risk of severe disease with Omicron. But that does not mean your risk is zero. There are still plenty of people because there are so many cases of Omicron, even if it is a smaller percentage, when you take a small percentage and you multiply it by a large number of people, there are going to be plenty of people who are hospitalized, plenty of people who unfortunately die because of this. And we are seeing exactly that. The, the case fatality rate of Omicron is dropped to just slightly above that of influenza. But we are seeing about five times as many cases of Omicron as we do of influenza in a bad flu season. And so that means we're going to see five times as many deaths. So yes, I think it's both of things that you said, uh, David, are true. There, You have a lower risk of having a bad outcome. But because there are so many cases, your absolute, the absolute chance of you having a bad outcome is, outcome is, is non-trivial. And that's what I, I wanted to separate because people, um, and we've, we've seen this from the questions coming in, uh, they, they latched on maybe because the fatigue, optimism, whatever, to the fact that this really is not something that they need to be as concerned about as they were about Delta. So just to translate, I wanted to underscore this point in closing. This is not something where people should be taking lightly. They should continue to follow the precautions. They should continue in their vaccine regimens. People still have to be on guard and, be, and take appropriate steps to protect either the people they work with, uh, their families, their kids, their friends, etc. Absolutely, David. Excellent okay. summary. All right. Uh, anyway, I look forward to continue conversation next week. Uh, you guys, as always, have been great. Stay safe and well. Bill, Fred, thank you once again. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.